It looked to me like it were literally impossible. I've never seen no like it. In 1913, Albert Ridley was walking to work as usual along a quiet country lane somewhere near Preston, England. Albert's job involved adding up long columns of sales figures, and he didn't find it very interesting. He craved a more exciting life. Recently, he had been reading about the fourth dimension in a popular science magazine, and the papers had been filled with news about a madman who had murdered his wife and led the police on a merry chase around Preston. Other than that, there was little to occupy Albert's mind and he was distinctly bored. As he rounded the corner of Meadows Lane, something caught his eye in the ditch. It was a wooden box engraved with what was probably a representation of the Hindu god Ganesh. Albert was not familiar with any Hindu gods, but the elephant head and four arms caught his eye. The box was also embedded with several small gems, which we now know to be quartz and red agate. The box is available in the British Museum for anyone wishing to inspect it. Albert fished the box out of the ditch and wiped off some of the dirt with his handkerchief. Remarkable, he muttered to himself. Sliding aside the box's silver catch, he carefully opened the box. It seemed to be filled with dried moss. He sniffed it cautiously, observing a curiously offensive odour. Then he noticed there was something nestled in the moss something hard and carefully crafted. He reached into the moss and gently pulled the object till it was half out of its mossy packaging. Then he tilted the box towards the light of the sun and then he fainted. When he regained consciousness some minutes later, the box was lying next to his head, the box having shut due to a spring-loaded mechanism. He didn't dare to open it again. Instead, he turned around and hurried home, taking the box with him. At home, he had the housekeeper make him a strong tea, and this he consumed with a shot of brandy. Then he sat the box on the desk in his small attic room, and again pulled back the catch. Before opening the lid, he said a prayer. The box was filled with dried moss, and buried in the moss was a small object made of wood and some unusual metal. He lifted it carefully out of the moss and stirred at it. It wasn't the material that the object was made of that was startling. It was the shape of the object. The object that Albert was staring at that he held in his hand was impossible, literally impossible. The shape was not a shape that could exist in three dimensions, and yet there it was, 
Albert was staring at a thing that the human mind could not grasp. The sensation of almost grasping it caused thoughts to whirl in his mind. Memories, the taste of a fruit he ate when he was eight, the smell of a ship he once saw, the square root of two, idealist philosophy. In an effort to comprehend the object, his mind gasped and flailed like a drowning man, clutching wildly and uselessly at every idea that might save it. He could stand only a minute of this before he placed the object carefully back in the moss and shut the box. His thoughts raced. What should he do now? Where had it come from? Who had created it and how? It's probable that he did not connect the box's engraving with India, or he might have sought out Indians, but he did not do that. Instead, he decided to take the box immediately to the university at Manchester. He arrived at the university in the afternoon and made his way to the physics department. He knew exactly who he wanted to see there. Professor G. Fielding wrote regularly for the magazine that Albert liked to read, and he seemed a nice enough character. It didn't take long to locate his office. Albert knocked at the door. Come, a voice boomed from within. Inside, Albert found the professor scribbling equations in a notebook on a mahogany desk, covered with papers filled with more equations. Yes, said Fielding, without even looking up. Professor, I have something to show you. I am a fan of your writing, said Albert. Your article refuting continental drift was most... Bring it out then, said Fielding tersely. I'm a busy man. Yes, of course, said Albert. He produced the box from his bag and flicked back the catch. He put it down on Fielding's desk and carefully pulled the object free from the moss. There it was again, a thing of metal and wood completely impossible, joined to itself in ways that no human mind could ever hope to fully comprehend. Again Albert's thoughts raced helplessly as his brain struggled with the impossible task of grasping what his eyes were seeing, his thoughts chasing each other like gas bubbles emerging from an otherwise still lake. Here it is, he said weakly. Fielding looked up and gazed at the object. Well, what is it? he said. It's an impossible object, said Albert. Looks perfectly possible to me, said Fielding. But look, said Albert, bringing it to within a foot of Fielding's face. Is this some sort of a joke? said Fielding. You're getting moss all over my equations. Get out of here. There could be no doubt that Fielding had seen the object. He had definitely looked directly at it. Look how this piece joins to this piece here, said Albert desperately. Get out, roared Fielding. Stunned, Albert carefully placed the object back in the box with trembling hands, 
packing the moss around it. He could not explain Fielding's lack of reaction. On the way back to the train station, he stopped into the first bar he saw and ordered a double gin. After that, he felt his mind to be somewhat clearer and he tried to consider the problem from all angles. Could it be that Fielding was such a genius, having considered multiple dimensions for so long, that he was able to properly comprehend the object? After all, the object could not literally be impossible. It could only appear to be impossible to the human mind. He quickly discarded this idea. Working mathematically with multiple dimensions is clearly not the same as comprehending more than three dimensions of space. No one can do that. Of this, Albert felt certain. Was Fielding such a close-minded fool that he simply refused to admit the truth of what he saw with his own eyes? This now seemed a distinct possibility. What he needed was not a professor, but a normal person, someone who could view the object without prejudice. The following morning he cornered his housekeeper as she was cleaning out the grate. Mrs Brown, I have something to show you, he said, opening a box. I can only spare a minute, said Mrs Brown, no more. That's okay, I don't even need a full minute, said Albert and he freed the object from the moss and held it to her eyes. What is it? she said. Well, don't you see? said Albert. I think I saw something like that in a museum once, but I'm not much for museums, she said. Damn it, look at it properly, said Albert. I am looking at it properly, she said, and I'd appreciate you not swearing. It's impossible, said Albert, almost shouting. A look of alarm began to appear on Mrs Brown's face. A previous tenant had gone insane and she'd had to contact the authorities and have him taken away to the lunatic asylum at Manchester. If you say so, sir, she said as calmly as she could manage. It can't exist, but it does, said Albert. Can't you see? If I'm to speak plainly, it looks quite ordinary to me, she said. Of course, I don't know much about geometry or the natural sciences. Hang it all, said Albert, stuffing the object back in the moss. Why can only I see it? Perhaps you need a holiday, sir, said Mrs Brown. There's a wonderful place in Switzerland that my cousin... I don't need a holiday, shouted Albert. As you say, sir, said Mrs Brown, coldly. Albert could see he wasn't going to get anywhere with her. His next idea was to show it to his friend Chalky. The day being a Saturday, Chalky was likely at home with his family. He proceeded immediately to Chalky's house and once there, persuaded him to take a walk down to the river. Chalky had to be carefully prepared. It was possible, he thought, that only a properly prepared mind could see the object for what it was. Accordingly, he began to tell him everything from the very beginning, but when he reached the bit about Professor Fielding, Chalky stopped him. 
Haven't you seen the morning paper? said Chalky. Why? said Albert. Your professor, he went mad yesterday. It must have happened only a few hours after you saw him. He attacked two people and jumped out of a window. I gather he messed himself up rather badly. They've had to cart him off to the asylum. Good heavens, said Albert. This can't be a coincidence. The object must have caused a terrible derangement of his faculties. You're lucky he didn't attack you, said Chalky. He bit a promising young student, apparently. The poor boy needed stitches. This was in the morning papers, said Albert. You'd better believe it, said Chalky. Look here, perhaps you'd better not show me this thing. I have a wife and a child. I can't afford to lose my marbles. Perhaps you're right, said Albert. But I feel all right myself, more or less. Are you sure you're all right, said Chalky. Albert didn't appear to be in the best of health. According to Chalky's later statement to the Preston police, Albert appeared pale and jittery and smelled of gin. They agreed it would be better not to show the object to anyone else. It would be better, they agreed, to locate some sort of specialist in antiquities, someone who might have an idea about the origin of the object. Accordingly, Albert decided to inspect the object alone carefully, with a view to them procuring the right type of expert to shed further light upon it. He was faced with the immediate problem that the object confused his thought. When viewing it, his mind raced and looped and leapt from one idea to another frenetically. He decided to attempt to view the object in semi-darkness by the light of a candle. Perhaps in poor light, the impossibility of the object would have less of a deleterious effect upon his faculties. He began with a careful inspection of the box. The engraving of Ganesh conveyed little to him, except it occurred to him that, given Ganesh's elephant head, the box at least may originate somewhere where there were elephants. The house's cat prowled around as he turned over the box in his hands. He was grateful for its company. It liked Albert and was prone to curling up in his lap. India, question mark, he wrote slowly on a piece of paper. Africa, question mark. Then he wrote, eight gemstones embedded in lid. Finally, he set the box down on his desk. Silver catch, he wrote. As far as he could tell, the catch was made of silver or an alloy of silver. Then he pulled the catch back and slowly opened the lid. Curious odour, he wrote, acrid, cloying, an exotic herb. The cat sprang onto his desk and began to rub itself against his arm. He petted it absently with his left hand. Then he began to carefully lift the object out of the moss. As soon as even a third of it was visible, his mind began to race. The dim light didn't seem to help at all. That thing was an impossibility. 
perhaps even a blasphemy. It could not and should not exist. The angles and lines of it were beyond all human reason, and perhaps defied the very laws of the universe itself. As he gazed at it, the window frame in front of his desk seemed to warp and oscillate curiously. Vivid images obtruded into his mind, flashing and disappearing before he could analyse them. Elephants, geometrical shapes, faces, impossibly convoluted knots, twinkling stars. He closed his eyes and suddenly there it was, a mountain peak at night, as if seen from above. Mist swirled on the lower slopes. A full moon cast a bluish glow, illuminating exposed rocks interspersed with patches of hardy vegetation. It was clear to him. The object could not tolerate low altitudes. It could not bear sunlight. It must be taken to the mountain at the very next full moon. His reverie was interrupted by a screech. The cat shot from his desk like a rocket, howling. He dropped the object back in its box and closed the lid. Then he lay back in his chair, covered with a fine perspiration. The cat had seen the object, that was obvious. The object was just as disturbing to the cat as it was to him. If even a cat could witness its horrible impossibility, then clearly he was not mad, as he had feared. As for Fielding, the man had simply refused to admit the object's impossibility, and the mental strain had driven him insane. Everything was clear to him now. Some deeply buried but intensely human instinct had shown him the only safe place for the object. Scaffold Pike lay no more than 70 miles from his present location. He would begin the journey the very next day, but first he would consult an almanac and determine the time of the next full moon. The following day, Albert was too busy with planning his journey to read the newspaper. Had he done so, he would have read the following headline, Fielding Escapes from Asylum. Unfortunately, Professor Fielding's status had changed from renowned professor of the natural sciences to escaped lunatic in the space of only two days. The article warned that Fielding had suffered a complete mental breakdown and was both violent and dangerous, and should not be approached under any circumstances. How he had escaped was unclear, but he had put two wardens in hospital, bringing his total victim count now to four. His whereabouts, according to the article, were completely unknown. Albert was able to get to Coniston by train that same day, arriving by nightfall. There he found lodging in a farm cottage. In three days the full moon would arrive and he would ascend Scaffold Pike and remove the object from the box to see what further instructions it had for him. He passed the next day making arrangements for the final leg of his journey. 
a coach would take him as far as Little Langdale, and from there he would walk the remaining ten miles. On the appointed day he gathered a few supplies since a ten mile hike to the top of a mountain is no small endeavour, and he set out for the top of Scaffold Pike. He knew that what he was doing from a strictly prosaic point of view was quite mad, but the object itself defied all explanation. Normal rules of behaviour could be of no use to him. As he set out for the mountain, he felt a strong sense of destiny and purpose. Whatever anxieties he had previously felt about the meaninglessness of his work, or his difficulty in meeting fiduciary obligations, were a thing of the past. The object was of transcendent importance, and it was up to him to return it to its natural environment. Perhaps then a miracle would occur, perhaps the second coming. Perhaps he would become a being of eternal light. The sun descended in the sky as he trudged towards the mountain peak, then dipped below the horizon. The sunlight was replaced by the cool light of a rising moon. Increasingly, the mountain began to resemble his vision. Mist swelled into its rifts and gullies, and the vegetation grew sparse and dry as he ascended higher. Unfortunately, he became increasingly disoriented as the evening wore on. The peak, which had seemed so clear from a distance, was now hard to divine. One minor summit was very hard to tell from another, and the path was frequently unmarked. Although he had taken with him a map and compass and made frequent use of them, he was not skilled in their use. He had intended to reach the peak by midnight, but by ten minutes to midnight he was hopelessly lost. It was as he rounded the foot of a steep cliff that he saw it, a rocky outcrop, outlined vividly against the night sky. Behind it stood the Milky Way in all its majesty, meteors occasionally flickering across it. Somehow he knew that was the spot where he must take the object. He began to run, determined to get there by midnight. As he approached the outcrop, he realised with a start that there was a figure already standing there, as if waiting for him. The figure strode back and forth impatiently, as if trying to keep warm. As he reached the highest point of the outcrop, the figure turned to face him. Good evening, it said. Who are you? said Albert, bewildered. I will tell you, but first give me the box. Albert dumbly removed the box from his backpack and handed it to the mysterious figure. In the moonlight, he saw that the man appeared Indian, although he spoke English with a cut glass public school accent. He wore a thick cloak of tweed and a curious white geometrical shape adorned his forehead, shining in the moonlight. My name is Rajendra, said the man. My grandfather was the great Siddha Rasanava. Perhaps you have heard of him. Albert shook his head. 
He was what you would call an alchemist, said Rajendra. The greatest of them all. His powers were greater than those of any modern chemist. Sadly, he became corrupt and decadent. That is why my father killed him. Your father killed his own father, said Albert. Precisely, said Rajendra. You see, Rasanava designed a substance of hideous fiendishness. A substance that causes evil and madness to grow in the hearts of all who are exposed to it. With this substance, he wished to turn the world to chaos and inhumanity. Of course, it wasn't enough to invent this substance. He needed to disperse it on the four winds. Accordingly, he designed the substance in such a way that it would compel its victims to seek out the highest mountains and cast it to the wind by the light of the full moon. Five full urns he made of this grotesque material. My father destroyed all of them, but then he discovered that a small quantity had been stolen by a cunning thief. The thief soaked moss in the substance and passed it off as packaging. Packaging, that is, for a silly child's puzzle, a toy. By this means he was able to smuggle it out of India. My father tracked this contrivance all the way to your country, taking me with him. When he died, I assumed the burden of his quest. Finally, I located the object just a month ago. It was being sold at a market for antiques. Can you imagine? The most destructive substance in the world sold as a curiosity. I was finally able to obtain it, to finish what my father had begun. Then it was stolen from me while I slept, by a common thief. I didn't steal it, said Albert. I know, said Rajendra. The thief murdered his lover and was chased by the police. When they caught him, he was quite mad and raving about mountains, but the box wasn't with him. He threw it into a ditch, said Albert, and I found it. But do you mean to tell me the object the box contains is a perfectly ordinary child's toy? Perfectly ordinary, it may not seem so to one who has inhaled the vapours from the moss that surrounds it. It causes terrible hallucinations. I see that you have been cautious, or you yourself would be quite insane. I have waited for you here in the hope that you would come, and I have come prepared for a battle. Rajendra opened his cloak to show a long, ugly blade strapped to his chest. No, there's not going to be any need for that, said Albert. And what now? Now I must destroy the box and its contents, and you will help me, I hope, he said. Before Albert could reply, there was a sudden roar and a thing sprang at them out of the darkness. It snarled and slabbered like a wild beast, but there was no mistaking it. It was Professor Fielding. Fielding lunged for the box, grabbing it from Rajendra's hand before he could react. Rajendra tried to push him away, but it was too late to save the box. 
Fielding staggered backwards, the box in his hand. Behind Fielding was a steep drop, perhaps 30 degrees to the vertical, and he careered right over it, taking the box with him. Albert ran to the edge and peered over. He saw Fielding falling incontinently, jagged rocks slashing his skin. He was screaming as he fell. The box sprang open and the wind caught its contents, scattering it into the cold air. The impossible object sprang out and bounced down the cliff. From the distance, Albert noted that it indeed looked more like a child's toy than anything else. Further down, the slope became even steeper and more jagged. Do you think he'll survive? said Albert. No, said Rajendra, he won't. Neither will we, unless we cover our mouths. He pressed a silken handkerchief to his mouth. Albert produced his tattered old handkerchief and did the same. They recovered the box and the object which no longer appeared impossible. The pieces of impregnated moss were carried on the wind around the earth. Anyone who inhaled even a small particle was destined to spread evil and madness. The following year, the world was plunged into chaos. Thank you for listening. If you have particular topics that you'd like me to write about, do let me know. If you enjoyed this story, please travel backwards in time and intercept Professor Fielding after he escapes from the lunatic asylum, tie him up and deliver him back to the asylum. It would really help me if you would do that. Oh, and I almost forgot to say, if you could also subscribe, that would be great.